So anytime the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche and the Bible agree, we should probably listen, right? Hear these words from his book in The Will to Power. Nietzsche wrote this. To those human beings who are of any concern to me, I wish suffering, desolation, sickness, ill treatment, indignities. I wish that they would not remain unfamiliar with profound self-contempt, the torture of self-mistrust, the wretchedness of being vanquished. I have no pity for them because I wish them the only thing that can today prove whether one is worth anything or not, that one endures. He's saying to those I love the most, I don't wish suffering away because suffering actually works in our lives to, to produce a value. It, it, it shows what we're made of. You see, Nietzsche realized that while suffering is unpleasant and wretched, it does something to us. It forms and shapes us. It, and as we endure, it refines away the impurities and reveals our worth. Local philosophy press, uh, professor John Kaig, at the universe, he's the uh, department chair at UMass Lowell in the philosophy department. He's got a book that just came out called Hiking with Nietzsche. And he says this, the self does not passively lie in wait for us to discover it. No selfhood is made. Things must suffer, go dark, and perish before they can live again. See, trials and suffering are the great equalizers of humanity, aren't they? It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter your family heritage or background or even your age. Suffering is indiscriminate. In this life, we will all experience our share of sunshine and storm. And what Nietzsche and Cog realize is that it's useless to try to spend your whole life trying to avoid it. Instead, we should lean into it and allow it to form and shape us into a person of substance. Now, while there's profound insight here, their philosophy falls short of the eloquence and wisdom and hope that's offered to us in the book of James. See, James is going to agree that suffering has this unique purpose to refine and shape us. It provides a pathway for the self to be made. But James gives us a far deeper hope than merely becoming. James holds out for us the promise of joy through our trials. He's going to tell us that a genuine faith not only perseveres through trial, but a genuine faith will experience joy in trial. James 1 is going to give us three reasons why our trials are an opportunity for joy. The first reason is this. Trials will accomplish God's divine purpose. Second, trials, during the trial, God is going to provide for our needs. There's actually provision in the trials. And finally, James tells us there's a promise to come after trials. So let's look at the first few verses to see the purpose of trials. Look with me at verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, right off the bat, we've got to deal with a couple things. Here, the author identifies himself as James. And I don't have time to go into the whole debate about which James it is, but church history tells us that this James who wrote this letter was the half-brother of Jesus. And I find that interesting that he doesn't use that as his title of authority. James, the brother of Jesus, right? 
In this letter, he's going to give 55 direct calls to obedience, 55 commands. It's actually the most commands per verse of any uh, book in the New Testament. And instead of using this authority as the brother of Jesus to ground his calls to action, he takes this title of a servant. He says, my name is James. You want to know who I am? I'm a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, he has no issue calling his brother Jesus the Lord. Now for a Jew to call him Lord, Adonai, that's a term reserved for God and God alone. He has no problem calling his his brother the Lord. And he has no issue calling Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, his Savior. Now I don't know if you have any siblings. Now how many of you are looking at your brothers and sisters and going, Lord, Messiah, right? In fact, the Gospels tell us that James and his other siblings actually thought Jesus was out of his mind. They wanted to institute him. They thought he was out of his mind and that sooner or later, if he kept going on the way that he was going, that he was going to be arrested, tried, and put to death. And that's exactly what happened, right? So what do you think would have happened to convince James that his brother, who he thought was crazy who he saw him be killed and executed on a cross what would change him to now say no 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 he is lord and savior look with me at first corinthians chapter 15 the answer lies there it changed him these verses changed him to worship him and follow him down the road to martyrdom church history tells us that this james was martyred for his belief in christ paul writes this for i delivered to you as of first importance what i also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, which means you can go talk to them right now, although some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, all the apostles. What would change him from thinking his brother was crazy to worshiping him as Lord and Savior? It was the resurrection that transformed James from an embarrassed skeptic to a believing, devoted follower. Seeing his brother hung on a cross then raised to life changed him. Next, James tells us who he wrote this letter to. He said it's written to the dispersion. Now that was a technical term to talk about Jews who were living outside of Jerusalem who had been scattered due to persecution. They've they've been dispersed. They've been scattered by persecution. In fact, Christians in this early day started to identify themselves as sojourners and strangers. They took on that identity as living in exile, waiting for the return of Christ to come back to finish what he had started and to gather them home to himself. And that's actually a great way for us to think about who we are. See, on Sundays and in our gospel communities, we gather together. And so we're the church gathered. But throughout the week, we're the church scattered, being scattered into our workplace, into our homes, into our neighborhoods and communities to be the light of Christ to the world. We are the scattered. We are the dispersed. And so while this was a book written to a specific group of people, it's also written to us today as the dispersed. Now, let's look at verse 2. James says this, count it all joy, 
my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James addresses his brothers and sisters in Christ with what seems like mutually incompatible words, right? Trial and joy. They don't go together. It's like oil and water. They, they can't mix. And so to count means to consider. He's saying you need to consider this. It's a, it's a cognitive verb. It's a verb of, of thinking. It's this Greek word that means to engage in an intellectual process where you're settling what's true and real. It's a matter of defining reality. Now, of course, you realize that's not a passive thing, right? When you deeply consider something, it's very much a, an active, intentional, and purposeful endeavor, right? You, you can't reactively go through this process of considering things. He's literally telling them, you need to change how you think and feel and respond to trials. And it's not merely a suggestion. In fact, this is the first of those 55 direct calls to obedience. He's saying, consider it. He's saying, do whatever it takes, but get your mind and your heart wrapped around the fact that trials are a pathway to sheer and utter joy. Not minimal joy, not fake joy, not conceived joy, but all joy. Now, he's not saying you've got to fake it till you make it. He's not saying that joy is the only response that you can have to the pain of trial. He's not encouraging you to be fake, right? Suffering hurts. We are free to be human. Let that sit over you for a minute. You don't have to fake some response to God. You can feel pain. You can feel grief. You can be disappointed. You can even feel despair. But he is calling us to this counterintuitive, paradigm-shifting considering where we see our trials as an occasion for joy. And when we talk about joy, we're not talking about happiness. Happiness is based on your circumstances. Joy is not circumstantial. It's not controlled by your environment. Joy goes far deeper than that. Joy is the emotion of having your deepest desires and longings fulfilled. And I think a lot of times we don't experience joy because we don't even know what those deepest longings are. We think we have these desires and we get them fulfilled, but we don't experience joy. And the problem is we haven't gone deep enough to the soul level to know what you were actually made for, what really will make you come alive. Joy gets at those deeper emotions. This isn't a call to the appearance of joy or fake joy. It's a call to categorically view trials not as circumstances only for despair and dejection, but as occasions and opportunities to rejoice. James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. We're going to continue to unpack that. This word for various kinds, kinds literally in the Greek means multicolored. What he's saying is trials are going to come at you. They're going to be diverse in frequency, duration, and intensity. Sometimes you'll face a trial and it's kind of minimal. You'll be able to muster up underneath it. 
Sometimes trials will feel like there's no possible way you can endure through them. They feel like they're going to crush you. Trials can be financial, relational, personal, vocational, spiritual, emotional, societal, marital, cultural, familial, and I ran out of other words that end in A-L. They can come in all shapes and sizes. It could be sickness, loneliness, grief, disappointment, injustice, natural disaster, job loss. We could probably spend the rest of our time together talking about what trials we can face. A trial is anything that presents a challenge and an obstacle to flourishing and thriving. Trials of various kinds. And James tells us you don't have to go looking for them either, right? You know that to be true if you've lived life long enough. They will find you. You don't have to go looking for trouble. You're just going to meet them on this journey of life. And James is saying, I know it seems so counterintuitive, but James is saying, these are actually occasions and opportunities for joy. Here's why. He gets to the purpose of the trials and the reason why it will lead to our joy. He goes on to say, trials will test your faith. This faith, which means to believe and trust in God. He says, trials, if you endure through them, actually produces steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. This word for testing, it's less about discovering if faith, faith exists it's more about refining. It's that kind of research and development. It's the, the, fire, the refiner's fire that takes something that already exists and it refines it. So think about refining gold to make it pure. You heat it up and in the crucible of, of the heat, the impurities, all the things that are not gold get burned away. And what you're left with is something that's more pure than it was before. And they heat it up and it gets burned off and they let it cool. They let it rest for a minute and then they heat it up again, right? And you kind of go through this process over and over to create something that is more and more pure. Doesn't that sound a lot like how our life goes? We go through a, a trial and an experience and it feels like the fire and things are getting burned off and then there's the cooling time. But then what happens? Give it enough time and the heat comes back up again. The difficulties and trials of life are intended by God to refine our faith. Heating faith in the crucible of suffering allows all the impurities to burn off so that our faith becomes more pure and valuable and strengthened than it was before. And that process of testing will produce steadfastness, patience, endurance, and fortitude. It's not a one-time boost of adrenaline. It's not a shot in the arm. To hold the line. It's this characteristic trait of endurance that is literally forged in your soul. Just like our muscles become strong when they face resistance, perseverance is forged when we face difficulties. And James tells us when perseverance and steadfastness and the trial of testing has had its full effect, James tells us that we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, steadfastness isn't the goal. It's a means towards the goal that our faith would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I want that kind of faith. He's saying, let steadfastness and the refining process reach its desired end. Don't abort the process while it's happening. Let it reach its goal, that we'd become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, this word for perfect means that something has reached its full potential and it's accomplished its 
desired goal. And this word for completed means that every detail, every box is checked. Like think about a construction job. When it's all said and done, there's a certificate of completion. They're saying this job is done. And it's also coming with the full report that everything passes and surpasses inspection, that it's of the highest quality. That's what it means to be perfect and complete. It's talking about a wholeness, an integrity, and an undivided commitment to God and Christ. That's where this is headed. The goal of trials is that we would be, have a fully integrated life where our actions are consistent with our beliefs and values. But the problem is if we're gut level honest today, right? We live fractured lives, don't we? With big inconsistencies in our character and in our actions. I mean, can we just be honest? Self-aware to see that we are far more compromised than we'd like to admit. So in God's mission to bring about restoration, he's, he has planned that suffering would play a role in reversing the fractures and the fissures of our soul. Isn't that amazing? He's actually taking the brokenness of this world and using what's broken to remake us. He's using brokenness to restore us. He uses brokenness to redeem. That's why beauty rises from the ashes. That's life from death. That's the power of the gospel. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is a grief expert, she says this, The most beautiful people are the ones who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of those depths. Why can James ask us to rethink how we view trials with such a strange and unexpected, even paradoxical response as joy? Because God uses our trials to perfect our faith and make it whole. In his sovereign plan of redemption, God uses our trials to bring about our maturity. Listen to what Charles Haddon Spurgeon writes. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. Trials lead to our joys because they have a purpose. Second, we're going to see trials lead to our joy because God provides in the midst of our trials. Look at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In the section above, we learn that trials are instruments in God's hands to bring about our full maturity so that we lack nothing. Then he says, if you find yourself in a place where you're currently lacking. That's actually all of us, right? None of us are completed uh, yet. We're works in progress. He's saying, if you lack the wisdom to navigate the trials of life, I have good news for you. God will provide the wisdom that you lack. Now, this is interesting. As I was thinking about this, that's not my first choice that I would ask for in terms of provision, right? If you're thinking about, man, I'm on the road of trial, my first thought isn't wisdom. My first thought is escape. 
God, get me out of here. That seems like a much quicker pathway out of the suffering. Make it go away. I want an exemption. And a very close second for me would be God, give me wealth. Because at least with money, I could kind of buy my way out of some sticky situations. Or who would ask for an abundance of relationships? God, if I'm going to have to go through trials, at least give me some companionship for the road. Or what about knowledge? God, make me intelligent, street savvy. Give me the plan so I can work my way out of trials. Now, not that any of those are bad things. Those are all great. But James is saying what we really need and what we really lack is wisdom. So what is wisdom? Paul David Tripp, who's wiser than me, says this. There's a significant difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is the accumulation of facts and information as a result of study. Whereas wisdom is the ability to discern what is good, true, and helpful. Knowledge is about the facts. Wisdom is about how to apply those facts, right, to make a wise and good decision. See, usually our problem, especially in the information age, is not a lack of access to information and knowledge and facts to make the right decision. What we lack is the wisdom to take that information and make the right decision. Wisdom is God-given and a God-centered discernment about how to best live in his world. In other words, it's seeing your situation and your circumstances as God sees them and then making a decision that aligns with his purpose and his plans. James says that wisdom is God's provision if we will ask for it in faith. So why should we ask God anyway? Like why why shouldn't I just go read it in a book? First off, God is the source of all wisdom. He can give it precisely because he has it. He is infinitely wise. And because he has it in abundance, his giving isn't restricted or limited. He's not going to run out. If all of us ask for it, he's not going to go, hey, man, I'm a little low on my wisdom quota for the month. I, I just can't give it to everybody. No, no. Abundance. All wisdom. He's not lacking in anything. We're the ones who lack wisdom. He has it in abundance. And the second reason why we should ask God is because he in his very nature is generous. He's not stingy. He's not withholding. He's not going to make you jump through a bunch of hoops to get it. So you can't Google wisdom. You can't find it in a video on YouTube. True wisdom is from God, and it's not available secondhand. It comes through a relationship with him. You can't get it at the thrift store. If you want wisdom, you got to go directly to the source. Now, what's more is when he gives it to us, he gives it, James says, without reproach, which means there's no reprimand, there's no guilt trips, there's no shaming you, but you should know better. No finger pointing, no scolding, mocking, no, I told you so, now you want my wisdom? None of that. When we ask in faith, God, I lack wisdom, he gives it generously. So what does it mean to ask in faith without doubting? Let me start by saying that does not mean perfect faith. If you think about it, this whole passage is about our faith becoming perfect, a process, which means we're not there yet. So he can't mean you've got to come with perfect faith. This whole thing is meant to refine and make our faith more pure than it was before, right? 
It helps to look at the end of the section where he explains more about who the doubter is. He goes on to say that the one who doubts is a double-minded man. This word double-minded literally means double-souled. He's not an integrated whole, but a fractured, disjointed person. He's double-souled. This is in stark contrast to the faith that's being made perfect, right? Faith that's being made perfect is moving towards integration and wholeness, where doubt is leading this person towards being separated, disjointed, unwhole, divided. In fact, the word for doubt means to dispute with yourself. As you're disputing with yourself, you're finding yourself becoming more and more doubted, uh, divided. See, doubt here is not the occasional question, or maybe you have a, a question about how will this work. That's not what doubt is. Doubt is a divided soul that has not put their faith and hope and trust in God. Maybe a better way to think about it is cynicism, this utter refusal to believe in God. It's an internal dialogue where you're not looking to move towards faith, you're actually looking to move further away. It's uh, doubt seeking validation for unbelief, not faith that seeks understanding. You see the difference between those two things? James is saying unbelieving doubt leads to spiritual schizophrenia, where faith leads to wholeness and peace. So again, let me say this. It doesn't mean that you can't have questions. It doesn't mean you have to have everything figured out. Faith, if anything, in the Bible is messy and imperfect. If you look in the book of Hebrews at these, these guys and women who had uh, the best faith, the models of faith, every one of them is messy and imperfect. Faith, even imperfect faith, is characterized by a movement towards God, seeking understanding. The dialogue stops being between you and yourself, and the dialogue starts to between, be between you and God. Faith seeking understanding says, God, I'm not sure why this is happening. I have a ton of questions, but I'm going to, in faith, trust you. I'm actually going to give you the benefit of my doubts. Please give me wisdom to see this trial the way you do. Help me to make decisions that bring glory to you and lead to my joy. That's an entirely different conversation. Doubt is a conversation with yourself where you're seeking validation for all the reasons why you shouldn't move towards God and trust him. James vividly illustrates what this cynical refusal to trust in God will look like. He said, you'll be like a person out at sea, on the raging sea, blown and tossed and driven by the rough winds and raging waters. See, doubt gives you no anchor for your soul when the storms of trials come, where faith anchors your soul to Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? It's not that Christians never doubt or have questions. It's just that when a Christian has doubts, there's a basement-level trust that says, when I can't understand God, I will give you the benefit of my doubts, and I will bring my concerns and my questions to you, not just to myself. James says, ask for God's wisdom, not just to see the divine purpose behind those trials, which is good, but also to see how you're supposed to live and endure through them. Wisdom is God's provision for you as you live through those trials. Now look at verse 9. James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation 
Because like a flower of the, of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. At first glance, it seems like, James, where are you going? I thought we were talking about wisdom. This is actually an application of that kind of wisdom. He's given you an example. So he says, look, to the brother of humble means, the guy who is uh, poor, don't look at your poverty as a sign that God doesn't love you or isn't for you. See, the temptation when you find yourself there, when you're struggling for daily needs, is to assume, man, God must not care. He must not be good, and he's certainly not a good provider. That's the doubt taking place. Wisdom says, resist that temptation. Remember, material wealth is fleeting, and it's actually not what defines you. What defines you is this. As Christ is exalted, you too will be exalted. You may be poor now, but remember, you have an inheritance that 1 Peter tells us is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. In Christ, you're actually very rich and exalted. And then he turns to the rich brother. He says, look, the temptation for you is to boast in your riches and to find your security in them. They're tempted to think, well, why do I need God? I have everything I need. Or sometimes the rich will look at their bank accounts and go, see, this is the evidence that God favors me and is blessing me. He must approve of me. Wisdom says, no, Wealth is going to pass away like wildflowers in the summer heat. If your security is in your wealth, there's coming a day when it could wither and dry up. And furthermore, your wealth is not a guarantee of God's approval. Your guarantee of God's approval is that he has found you righteous in Christ. Money doesn't make you better. Money's often about power and elevation. He's saying, look at the humiliation of Christ. He was a humble servant. Make your boast, not in your wealth, but in being identified with Christ as a humble servant. Do you see how wisdom is reversing the societal norms about money? To see the world as God sees the world and to make a wise decision about it. True wisdom is choosing to believe God is good despite your current circumstances. It's a way to see your trials with a new perspective. And that's a wisdom you can't muster up. It's a wisdom that's given by God, and he promises he will give it to you if you ask for it in faith. Our trials are a reason for joy because there's purpose behind them, and God provides in them. Finally, let's look at the last verses to see his promise. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. James took a little sidebar to talk about wisdom and the need for it as we endure trials of various kinds. Now he picks back up on that train of thought. If you notice, verse 12 kind of feels like a summary of what he said in verses 1 through 4. And he does so with this beatitude, this blessed is the man. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. 
And if you're familiar with the Bible, you may be thinking, hey, wait a minute. That sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus' big brother gave the most impressive sermon of all time. In fact, James is going to make 20 different references to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, to be blessed is to flourish and thrive as you live according to God's ways and experience his favor. That's what it means to be blessed. Here, the blessed one is the one who remains steadfast and perseveres through the refining fires of trial. And now we hear the promise. He says, to the one who loves God and endures, here's the promise, you will receive the crown of life. James is saying, listen, to the one who loves God, that love of God is directly connected and correlated to remaining steadfast through the trial and the testing. See, it's love for God that will keep your eyes firmly fixed on the God who loves you. It's love for God that will fight for the truth and drown out the lies that God has abandoned you and that he's not for you. It's love for God that will let you know that it will all be worth it in the end. It's love for God that will keep you centered on the promise to come. God has promised to those who love him, not only will they endure through the trial, but they will receive a crown of life. will be crowned with him as his beloved children, co-heirs with Christ to reign and rule with him. Now this promise gives us the hope we need to endure the most difficult seasons of pain and suffering. See, when you're going through something hard, you need the promise of something coming that's better to help you get through it. From here, James is going to move into this insight into how temptation works as we go through seasons of testing. Because during seasons of testing, we are incredibly susceptible to temptation. So he's saying, hold that thought. The promise of God is being held out to you while you're going through these trials. But remember, there's going to be temptations along the way. Let me talk about those. James says, when you face temptation, don't blame God. There's this guttural response to want to go, it must be coming from you. He's saying God himself can't be tempted and God himself tempts no one. God is not the one to lure you towards sin. Right? It goes against his very character. He's a God of life not death, to draw people towards sin would go against his very character and nature of being infinitely good and faithful. It actually would go against the work that he's trying to do. So James gives us some tough soul medicine here. He said, don't blame God. If you want to know where temptation comes from, look in the mirror. Our temptations come from our own disordered desires that lure and entice us. In fact, these were fishing terms. He's saying the bait is set, and we're drawn to it. And once we take the bait, we're dragged and pulled away. It gets worse. James says that desire conceives, and it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings destruction and death. You notice the sequence of actions escalates, doesn't it? And the consequences become tragic. Another way to think about it is this. The lies of a two-year-old are often inconsequential, right? Sometimes it's even kind of cute when they're trying to get away with something. You're like, no, I didn't do it, and there's like chocolate all over their face, you know? But the lies of a 40-year-old man can bring destruction. It can destroy an entire family. 
That's what happens when our desires and our sin grows into maturity. See, we like to blame shift and put our failures of being tempted on other people, but the reality is we lead our own selves astray. Instead of putting evil and sinful desires to death, we actually give them a place to live in our hearts. We harbor them. We give them safe passage. See, when we're pressed, we long for control because we want things to go our way. When we're down, we want comfort because we long for pleasure. When we struggle, we're quick to blame God and to look for our approval elsewhere because we long to be accepted. And when we don't feel like we can take it anymore, we long to have the power and influence and ability to make it go away. James is saying, don't go there. God's not tempting you. He's actually working to use those trials to bring about your maturity and wholeness. But James isn't done yet. He has one final word to bring it all together. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of his truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his uh, creation. Finally, he challenges us to fight deception with truth. He said, when you're tempted to be deceived, he says, don't deceive, don't be deceived. When temptation comes your way, when the trials of life feel like it's all you know, remember this, every good and perfect gift comes from God. He will give you wisdom to endure temptation. He's working your trials for your joy and maturity. He doesn't change. He's not capricious. He remains faithful and steadfast. He's not leading you towards death or trying to crush you. In fact, it's the opposite. He's the one who's brought new life to this word. He's the one who used the word of his truth to bring new life into your life. And his desire is to make you a showcase of his new creation. James says we're like his first fruits. The, we're, none of us are farmers in here, but the first fruits were like a, a showcase of going, look what is to come. It's your first offering of the harvest. Look at what's coming. It's a foretaste. James is saying we can endure trial and temptation and believe it results in our joy because of his promise that God is generous and good and he gives us new birth in Christ. He's not simply saying, look, with God, you can do better. That's not enough. James tells us at the end here that being a Christian, being saved is about new birth. He will bring forth new life. That's what James is saying in this last verse. Verse, he brought us forth. He gave us new birth. It's a radical changing of, a, of the heart. It's not from going good to great. It's starting completely over. New life, spiritual rebirth. That's why James can say with confidence that God is not out to destroy us with temptation or crush us with trial. He's bringing about new life in your life. And he is faithful to, to carry it into completion. Now, as we close up, let's, let's take a step back to bring all these 18 verses together because together, we've covered a lot of ground. We started off by saying that trials were a reason for joy because there's a God-intended purpose behind them. He's not playing games with you. He's not out to get you. He's allowing us to go through the fires of trial uh, for a reason, for our good and maturity and depth. But not only that, he's going to provide what we need in those trials, namely wisdom to navigate the difficulties of life to make wise and good decisions. 
And he says, finally, our joy is wrapped up in a coming promise that there will be this crown of life, that our life will be restored and renewed with him. Taken together, that's why we can see trials as an occasion and an opportunity for joy because when it has its way, we will receive the deepest longings of our soul, which is being united again with God. We have no greater example than Jesus, who not only modeled this for us, but makes it possible for us to follow in his footsteps. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 2. He says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus considered it pure joy to live the life we could never live. Joy was set before him to fulfill God's directed purpose for his life, which was this, to bring many sons and daughters from ruin to glory and to establish and perfect our faith. But to get there, what did he have to do? He had to endure trial and temptation of the cross. He wore the crown of thorns so that you and I could wear a crown of life. And as he was suffering, he cried real tears. He faced real anxiety. He experienced real suffering. And he didn't do it as a stoic, as a statue. He wasn't delusional. He knew exactly what it would cost him. But for the joy set before him, he endured, trusting that God's promise to him would come true, that he would be restored to the right hand of God the Father, which is where he is right now, awaiting the day of his return to finish the work he started. Remember at the beginning, I quoted you that quote from that philosophy professor at UMass. Remember what he said. Things must suffer, go dark, and perish before they live again. To my knowledge, that guy is not a Christian, but something deep down in his soul instinctively knows that beauty rises from ashes. Jesus suffered, went dark, and perished. But thanks be to God, he now lives again. And his life can be your life, and by his grace, you can endure every trial as God works to bring about your maturity. Brothers and sisters, let's consider it pure joy when we face trials of today and tomorrow and trust that the Lord is doing something more than we can see. He is refining your faith to bring it about to be pure gold.